Hey guys, welcome to Film 7 Interviews. In this new part of our channel, we will be talking, discussing, and getting into the minds of creatives within the film industry. On our first interview, we have the incredibly talented Sophie Black, who is a director, writer, producer, costume designer, production designer, and head of Trescale Productions, who is here to chat to us about her career, her insights, and her latest film, the Poison Ivy fan film, Growing Shadows. So without further ado, Welcome to Film 7, Sophie. We're so glad you could take time of your busy schedule to do this with us. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. That was a fantastic introduction. Thank you. No, that's not a problem. As I said from up top, you are incredibly talented with all these accolades you have behind you. So we're honoured just to talk to you. Oh, bless you. That's so kind. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so um, let's get to the very beginning. What made you start pursue filmmaking and getting into this industry? Uh, well, I mean, the film that, I mean, I used to go and see a lot of fantasy films as a kid with my dad and my brother. And so obviously when Lord of the Rings came out in 2001, we went there straight away as soon as we could. And I think it changed my life because up until that point, I'd very much just seen films as these amazing things that we could all go and see and enjoy. But I didn't actually think you could do this as a career. I'm from a very, very small town in Derbyshire and no one made films when I was a kid. And seeing Lord of the Rings and the scale of it and Peter Jackson was so generous with his interviews about the film and his career. And it was reading those that made me realise that you can do this for a job and if you can, why wouldn't you want to? Um, and so I very much, that's kind of what made me start. I begged my parents for a camera and they kindly got me one and I went out and just made films with my friends. and went to university, went to the University of Creative Arts in 2007, uh, learnt film production there, learnt the basics there. And then kind of after there got, after then I, I worked on as many films as I could and I mostly worked in the art department for most of the first few years of my career were basically spent in the art department of films. And that's how I got my start. It's interesting that you say The Lord of the Rings kicked it off for you because I, I'm, I've always said that if for anyone who wants to get into filmmaking, sit down and watch all the appendices of The Lord of the Rings, the, film, the behind the oh, scenes. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a masterclass <laughs> in filmmaking. Absolutely. I was in high school when I watched those. and I, I had a sick day and I just devoured all of them in yeah. like a day. So yeah, you obviously started with, you know, just shooting with your friends and small like little indie oh. pictures and stuff for that. At the beginning, though, what sort of roadblocks did you face when you were starting out? Obviously, as you said, you're coming from a small town where there wasn't many filmmakers. How did you sort of get through that and break that through? That was actually, because not only did no one make film, apart from me and my friends, really, uh, no one was teaching film. And that's why I, I went all the way down to Surrey to get my degree. And that was a huge baptism of fire, because when I got there, I met a lot of people from London and actually from all around the world who'd come to this university because it was a good university. Um, but they had all already worked in film. Well, most of them you know, were getting quite a lot of money for their filmmaking career at the weekends. And they were so experienced and so brilliant. And I was very much a small town girl from Derbyshire coming along and knowing nothing. I just shot stuff on auto with friends in our parents' houses. And I had to learn everything from scratch I, I had no like educational knowledge of filmmaking at all just basic hands-on stuff 
So I had to catch up so fast and everyone else would go home at the weekends and I would just live in the libraries or take books back to my little student flat and just learn as much as I could. Um, so that was hard. And, and even when I graduated and I did, I did come back to Derbyshire, um, there was still no one doing film and no one teaching film. And it was very, yeah, it took me a long time, I think, to actually build up my career because Derbyshire was not the place to be back then. I kind of stalled and it took me at least a year to find another production company that was making films nearby that I could work on, again, in, in the art department. It's completely different now. It, there are so many filmmakers now in Derbyshire who will be coming straight out of even school and having fantastic careers because there's an amazing support network here now and there's an amazing group of filmmakers locally. Um, but it wasn't the case 10 years ago. <laughs> so it, it's grown so quickly in the area in the last yeah. 10 years. Yeah, that's really good. Would you like to think that you helped start that off in the Derbyshire area? Well, I mean, I I hope so. I hope I've helped as much as I can. I mean, what's really cool is people starting out in the area in film production now, they know who I am and I have that's no cool. idea why. And they'll meet me and they'll, they'll have heard of my films and they'll go, oh, you did Ashes or you did Stop a Jack. And, and um, uh, always makes me feel really humble when I'm, I'm like what how on earth do you know who I am um but they do and um yeah I mean I try and help as much as I can uh mm -hmm. going to local networking groups and uh film nights and film festivals and trying to shout about all the filmmakers from around here if someone's making great work around here which a lot of them are doing I always try and share as much as I can and um and I think actually just by making films in Derbyshire and actually saying I'm going to make a film here I think it's the best thing we can do for the area. And I have, apart from one, hosted every film shoot I've directed or produced in the area. And I think that's the best thing we can do to increase not only um, the, the visibility of Derbyshire on the filmmaking map, but also to create jobs for filmmakers in Derbyshire. I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah, I think that's really important because, you know, in the film industry, when when you're sorting, starting out, everyone tells you, well, you've, there's, there's three places you've got to go if you want to make it. And that's London, New York or L.A. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and and, it like, and it's almost like and those are three huge cities with so much competition. It's so, so intimidating. But it's really good that we we're moving into a stage now where, you know, I'm from the Bristol area and, and there's a there's a really good film and creative scene around here. And it's really nice to see in, in areas like Derbyshire as well, where you sort of wouldn't expect it that you're getting that um, upcoming of a film scene there as well. Definitely, yeah. If you go to London and, and if you try and get work, there are a million people going for the work as, you know, as well as you. And exactly. when I first started applying for work in Derbyshire, if any jobs came up, particularly in the art department, I did get them <laughs> because there was no one else here. I don't know if I was the best person for the job, but I was able to get so much experience because if any jobs did come up, I would get them back then. So it was incredibly helpful for me. Yeah, I can, I can imagine so. So tell us a little bit about Truscale Productions. Am I pronouncing that right? Truscale Pictures, yeah. Um, Truscale, yeah. So how long ago did you, like, did you start that straight after you came out of uni and when you moved back to Derbyshire or did that take you a little bit while before you started this company? It was kind of, I initially started using the name at university. So we celebrated our 10-year anniversary last year, last September. Congratulations. And Thank you. And um, released a little film about the last 10 years, which is on YouTube now, called Trisco at 10. Uh, initially, it was well when we were all at, at film school and fantasising about the future beyond film school, everyone had 
their like if I had a production company like Spielberg it'd be called this and we all announced what our name would be for fun mm-hmm. and I used Trisco because I was massively into Celtic symbology back then and the Trisco was a symbol that I love from Celtic mythology and I, I spelt it wrong <laughs> for a start uh, but I started using Triscale pictures and it's still spelt wrong I'm afraid <laughs> well but at least that... people won't mistake it for the actual Triscale symbol yeah and it means we're like first result on Google if you, if you there you go pictures, so it's worked out fine um, but yeah so I started using that at university and started putting it on my films and created a little logo uh, we've had a much better logo created since then by by Sam Haynes, so shout out to him. Uh, but initially, it was just the logo I put on my own films because um, we were all doing it back then. I and it was very much just me, and it was sim- symbolic of my films and my work and me as a person. And I love the fact that it's it's grown and it's more of a collective now because over the years of, of using Triscoll on my films as a logo. I've met more collaborators and I've met regular collaborators and created this amazing little film family of people who either officially are members of Triscale Pictures, like Tommy Draper and Laura Can, or they're like honorary members. They're the, the extended family. They're the crazy uncles that come in from time to time, mm-hmm. but they're all kind of part of the same team. Um, and so it's it's grown very much into not only a group of people, but also a brand. Because I think we've we've built up our work over time to be fairly distinct and to be magical realist in genre and in tone uh so i think it's it, we've got quite a recognizable brand as well as a group of people that are within that umbrella and that makes me incredibly proud we became a limited company in i think it was 2014 onwards so yeah it's all all official now you're in the big leads now <laughs> well not quite we're still like a very small micro entity on the grand scheme of things but yeah no I'm very proud of what we've built yeah yeah so how did it sort of evolve from just you to this labyrinth of people like obviously film is all about collaboration yes uh, but how many would you say are in not maybe not directly under the umbrella but part of that sort of family like in 10 years time, like from 10 years ago well like I said we've got yeah three three members full-time but then the rest we have uh well we've had some reoccurring actors who I, I see very much as extended family and um, it's the DOPs that we have I have three DOPs that I go between all the time called uh, Neil Oseman, Chris Newman and Will Price and I very much see them as kind of our extended family as well because they have not only worked on so many of our films but contributed to that amazing aesthetic as well so I've very much adopted them and design teams, makeup artists, again, all reoccurring. Probably there's like 10, 15 people yeah, that I would call on in a heart who work with me and who work with Triscale. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. met with them. Like, it is collaboration that m- meant that I met those people because I, when I started out, and I was in the art department of a lot of independent shorts and features doing costume design and production design. That is how I met my team. I was working for these people. <laughs> And working under them and getting to know them and and dedicating myself to making their films happen. And after having done that for a while and admitting to them that I wanted to direct and I wanted to to build my little empire of films, because I'd worked for them and because I'd supported them, they they paid it back and they supported me. Neil Oseman is a 
fantastic example of that because he was a DOP on a lot of films that I was in the art department of. And when he directed his short film Stop Eject, that was a pivotal moment because I was production designer and I got promoted to producer. Just oh, wow. Through. Yeah, and it was a huge leap. And I was like 22, 23 at the time. And it just through, through working with him and showing my skill set and really, really getting on with him so well. Uh, but that was a huge example of because I'd worked for them and supported them. They then turned it around and supported me and helped make my films happen. Um, looking at Trasco Productions and like, like you said, you have a variety of different genres within your films. Now, you know, any, anything from, you know, what we're going to talk about later, the Poison Ivy fan film to The Dress is actually one of my favourites. Um, oh, that's- Cute. Yeah. That's one of our <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just I watched it a few days ago, and I was like, "Wow, man, this this is this is good stuff right here." Uh, so plenty of different genres there, but you also uh, I noticed you also do commercials and music videos. So how did you sort of get involved in that aspect of the industry as well as well as making films? Well, a lot of that was grafting. I mean, we need to make money, and the shorts don't obviously don't make money I mean they sometimes do but not really so that was just an element of grafting and going out and say trying to find people I could make work for either and often trying to make find people that I loved their style and I thought I could bring something to their promotional film as a filmmaker they might not get elsewhere I've had some amazing clients over the years who I absolutely love and making their films for them but they're often these brilliant, amazing artists and companies themselves. So, for example, um, I did a promo video two years ago for Apothecary Mead, who are a mead-making company, they're a family-run mead-making business, and they're artists too. And so they really appreciated having a video made by calling myself an artist. That sounds really, really up myself. But, you know, you know what I mean? That kind of creative approach is something that they appreciated. But to begin with, um, it was quite hard to get work because there's so many film production companies and it's so hard to stand out, particularly when you're finding your style. So what I would do early on is um, I'd make videos for people for free. And I don't always recommend that, but when I was very fresh-faced and trying to build my career, I would approach people and say, you know, I love your business. Can I make you a little promo video so that I have something to show to other businesses? And, and, you know, t- as an example of what I can do. And so I did that for um, a vintage shop a few years ago, when, again, when I was first starting out. And I used that as a tool to get more work because before that I had nothing to show and no one was going to pay me to make something if I didn't have relevant examples of work to show. So that was how I, and I do recommend that to people if, if they really, really can't get work. That's a great way of doing it. Going and making their own examples of work to show to people is, is a really good tool, I think. I found it really interesting that when you were in in regards, especially to like the commercial side of it, that they like the artistic approach. Uh, I really yes. like that because you want to sort of get away from corporate style commercials, don't you? Uh, yes. And it's really interesting that this company was like, no, no, we want to take a very artistic approach to it. And they appreciate that. That's really interesting. I like that a lot. I think you've got to know what your USP is mm-hmm. because there's, point making the same films as anyone else if someone make, wants to make a you know a corporate film i do work in corporate film but not not through trisco it's very much a separate thing and i do enjoy working through corporate film but if someone wants a corporate film there's so many brilliant companies that that can do that for them you 
to have a USP and you've got to have it. If you come to this company, it's for a reason. You know, you've got to you've got to stand out. And I think the experience that we have in film production and making incredibly magical short films, and we can bring that approach to telling the stories of artists, musicians, uh, companies, and you know, telling their story in that way. And some people will want that and some people won't. Mm-hmm. But for the people that do want that, what we end up doing is not only having a great collaborative relationship with the client, so it feels like working with them rather than working for them, but we end up both having videos that we want to share, which, which is fantastic. So, yeah, I think you've yeah. got to establish yourself. If you're making videos for other people, why they should come to you and why other people probably shouldn't come to you. Yeah, because uh, it's not always just about the paycheck, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I mean, we've all had to do work that is just for the money. To keep of course, them. yes. But moving well, forward, you've got to establish a brand. Otherwise, if you can't hone your specialist skills, you can't give your client the best product possible. Mm-hmm. So you've yeah. got to specialise, even if it's quite a general specialism, like cinematic videos. You, you've got to give them the best thing possible. If you're doing too many different types of videos, you won't be a specialist and you won't hone your craft. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, but I also noticed uh, this is how versatile your production company is. That you also do costume design, which for most production uh, companies is highly uncommon. Uh, so yeah. could you could you tell us a bit about that? Because you initially said at the beginning that you sort of began your career in the art department. Yes, and that's why it, it is a skill that we can offer that a lot of companies don't. Is the in-house art department services. I do have a production designer called Charlotte Ball, who I bring on for my own shorts, because and I used to design my own shorts and, and as well as directing them, and it became too much of a juggling act. So I brought Charlotte in, who is an amazing freelance production designer, and she keeps that aesthetic going for me. Um, so big shout out to Charlotte. But yes, I because I was in the art department. I learned how to not only do set dressing, but I also know how to sew and how to make costumes. And that's something I've done ever since ever since high school. I did textile set design. And obviously, when you're a kid, you have a lot more free time. So I did teach myself to sew. And I used to make all my own Halloween costumes when I was that age. And I had loads right. of time. And I'd really go, me and my friends would really go full out competitive with making costumes. And some of them still do. So that was the great way of practicing that. But yeah, and that's why when I graduated and I knew I had to find work, I knew I I needed an employable skill, much as I see myself as a director and I love directing overall, I wanted a skill that I could use as a crew member to get work. So when I was at university, going back a little bit here at the University of Creative Arts, they made us specialise. And so I specialised in production design because I knew I already had a bit of knowledge in that area and it's something I enjoyed and I had some skill in. And that's why I specialised in that area is because I wanted to get work and I needed to get work. Um, and so, and I, and I did, like I said, when I came back to Derbyshire and I had a bit of skill and I had my degree behind me, I was able to get the work because there weren't many jobs around. And that's why I started doing art department. But I do still have those skills. I do still have costume and set design skills. And I... I mean, if you see my my body of work as a director and a producer, my body of work as an art department worker is about three times as big. And mm-hmm. I do still do it as a job and it is still a service I can offer people. So that's why we, we have it on the website because it is a service that we can offer through me, basically, or through bringing, bringing in Charlotte as well sometimes. Yeah. 
yeah, I think I think it really shows in your films as well. Like your films, above all else, I think they're really beautiful to look at. The artistic yeah. approach to it uh, is, and the design, the production design, costume design, everything, everything is for me flawless, and it's and it it almost tells the story in itself uh, with very Thanks. little dialogue in in some places, which is really really good to to hear and and see. Well, it makes sense because that was my. I mean, thank you, but that was my discipline beforehand. A lot of directors I meet, they do have secondary disciplines, again, maybe because they enjoy it or because they needed to find work, but you get some directors who are also cinematographers or some directors who are also editors, and I've met some who are also actors. Mm-hmm. And I think having a secondary skill kind of feeds into who you are as a director, and whatever your secondary or your initial discipline is, I think, feeds into it. And so because I learned set design, I have a very strong knowledge of colour and shape and yeah. fabrics which is very useful with certain camera sensors <laughs> um and so that always feeds into what i do but i know how to tell a character's story through set design and costume as much as i know how to work with actors so i like to feed all that in to the characters to try and have this full 360 approach to telling who they are on screen right well that's perfect segue into growing shadows i think um now, Growing Shadows, I was introduced to this film by our mutual friend, Joanne Chipol. Oh, yes. Oh, bless him. He was here last weekend. <laughs> oh, great. great. I haven't seen him in ages, but um, we know each other from our hometown of Gibraltar. Uh, so, yeah, he because int- he knows how much of a huge DC Comics uh, and slash Batman fan I am. Uh, so he right. was like, yo, check this out. This is a, f- a f- couple of friends of mine. They did this Poison Ivy fan film. Now, I'm, I'm not going to lie. At the beginning, I was a bit skeptical because I think for me, uh, from, with most fan films, I'm like, nah, you know, like, yeah. like they, they, I can see it, they try to get more of the action visual element rather than understanding who the, that character is. Yes. Um, we, uh, we've saw a lot of them in pre-production as like how not to do it basically yes yeah because i think a lot of problem with fan films is sometimes they can get too fan film like oh, too fan servicey in a way yeah. uh but watching this film uh, i couldn't take my eyes off it and it is definitely not the case with this film i was blown away by how both you and aislinn Ack, who is uh, the lead actress and i believe she wrote the script as well she did yeah multi-talented yes um I was just like, man, these these two really know this character of Poison Ivy. Like they 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 really get the the theology and the ideology of what this character means and stands for, especially in the sort of time we're living in now. Uh, yes. What with you know uh, things from you know the Me Too Me Too movement and climate change and all all things like that. So, how did you? come up with the idea of doing Growing Shadows? Did Was it already written from the mind of Aislinn and she came to you or was it more of a collaboration from the get-go? Well, to start with, I think you're 100% right that, that Poison Ivy, although she's seen as a villain, is kind of the hero we'd need now. Throughout the comic books, a lot of her... The things that she do are fueled for good reasons. She does bad things for good reasons. And all of it is to help the climate and also she targets a lot of rich businessmen. Uh, which I think we, a lot of us want to do at the moment, particularly looking at politics. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a lot of the things she does maybe back then would have seen been seen as, as things not worth pursuing. But 
the world has changed and perceptions have changed and everyone is now aware of global climate change and global warming and I mean all you need to do is look at those horrible horrible sights of the Amazon on fire a couple of weeks ago it's awful isn't it it's just devastating and and then it turned out it was blamed on global warming initially and now there's an undercurrent of conversation as to whether or not it was actually conducted by businessmen or businessmen were in charge of essentially not fixing the problem mm-hmm. and that is a storyline in poison ivy that is something very very similar happens in one of her comic books mm-hmm. and so there is a definitely a current understanding and need for her I think as well but yes going back I mean I I've always loved Poison Ivy as a kid I grew up watching the Batman animated series and loving it and seeing this amazing plant loving female character who was so powerful but quite petite as well was was really inspiring for me I I even spray painted my hair orange one time <laughs> just to be like her. Um, I'm a huge nature nut myself. Always love nature, and I love my garden as well. So I've always loved her. And then working with Ashlyn um, through sort of conversations on Twitter, and then making the dress, and it, we discovered we both loved poison ivy. And it was through a Pinterest conversation. Ashlyn actually shared a picture of poison ivy on Pinterest, and I saw it, and I was like. Oh, I'd love it if we made a Poison Ivy film. That'd be, if I could make one superhero film, that'd be the one I'd do. And she was like, I would totally make that too. I, you know, I, and we both agreed she could be in it because of her amazing red hair and her sort of 1950s style that she has. We knew she was a perfect fit even before I'd seen her trying to play the part in any way. And it was just through that conversation of like, should we make this? That'd be awesome. And then, and then we kind of did. We, that was, two, I think it was in the 2015, and we said maybe January 2016 we might try and make something small as like a little tiny concept piece. Um, but then we both got very busy. I ended up shooting Songbird, which is the biggest film I've ever done as a director, and we didn't end up even coming close to making Poison Ivy for another three years. It was 2018, so two years until we made it. Um, but we finished it this year, so three years in total. But long time in the making, a lot of conversations of, I mean, Ashlyn's a huge DC geek as well. She would tell me so much stuff about Poison Ivy before I even started my research. And having done my research, I now am almost at that kind of level that Ashlyn's at with my Mm -hmm. geeky knowledge. But not. she really is an uber geek, which is amazingly good fun to talk to her about things. But she wrote the script based on, there's a comic book by Andrew Senti called Growing um what's it uh what's it called one second uh I've completely I want to say Growing Shadows Cast Shadows by Andrew Senti um and I love that one in particular because it's set in Arkham Asylum I love an asylum setting I think it's an incredibly rich environment for us to work within so I was so keen to get that asylum setting and it's about her psyche and her mindset as she's trapped within this asylum and I was like that's a perfect perfect one for us to look at we knew most of it took place in her cell so Mm -hmm. it would be achievable on a budget so Ashlyn got that comic and looked at it as an initial inspiration and we looked at that for the main plot structure but then we also looked at what we love about Poison Ivy and 
uh, what other people love about poison ivy and also the modern approach and how to make it palatable for a post Christopher Nolan era audience and kind of fed all that into what we hope would be the perfect little fan film that ticked all those boxes for people. I totally get the sense of uh, realism in this film, which you do, you, you have that sort of tone of Christopher Nolan in a way, the Nolan verse. However, I do get more of a Tim Burton Batman animated series era of Batman in this. Like I think that sort of flavor is all over the place. Thank you. Well, stylistically, the biggest thing we looked at was film noir because of the original setting and the time period that Batman is from, which I think feeds into a lot of the animated series as well. But that kind of that darkness and the shadows and and Will Price was the DOP on this one. And he did an amazing job looking at how to, you know, obviously use the the iconic film noir lighting and the the way it's, it's structured in terms of shadows and backlight and all those wonderful, wonderful things. And we had the cell bars. Mm-hmm. Of course, which is perfect for achieving a film noir look because you look at film noir, it's all about blinds and stripes and stripy mm-hmm. shadows. So that gave us a great opportunity, but as well as looking at a lot of... I mean, we got the story as close to doing justice to Poison Ivy and realism in terms of the Nolan era, but in terms of the cinematography, a lot of the things we looked at were actually things like Gilda, starring mm-hmm. Rita Hemsworth and her styling, which also feeds into Poison Ivy as a character because she is very, she's got very vintage hair in a lot of the depictions of her. She's very seductive. And we see her as kind of this femme fatale with an amazing, ambitious heart. Mm-hmm. That was a really fed costume and set design as well. Could you go a bit more into why you wanted to do Ivy? And, and like, why do you think it's important for modern audiences to learn about Poison Ivy because there are, you know, there, there, if you look back some of the earlier comics, there would yes. be, you, could, you could say some criticism that it's the misuse of feminist ways, you know, utility or sexualization to get what she wants. Uh, yes. But obviously Ivy has come a long way since then. You know, writers of these stories have come a long way since then. Why do you think it's uh, Ivy still an important character to t- for modern audiences to learn about? I mean, I think the original Poison Ivy, a lot of that, obviously, you've just got to see it as a product of its time and you've got to understand it based on the era that it was made in. Her her sexuality is something that we, we talked about in depth because we didn't want to take that away from her. We wanted that to still be who she is. And like we wanted it to be a part of her in terms of owning her sexuality and finding strength in sexuality and there's you know nothing wrong with that. Women can feel empowered by being sexual and be, by being sexy. And that's something that me and Ashley talked about in detail. And, and it's so important to feel confident in your own skin. And mm-hmm. there is nothing wrong with that at all. And keeping that sense of strength with seduction was important. But also the sex as a weapon is something that we were less keen to show. Mm-hmm. Sex strength, definitely, but not just men falling all over her and you know (laughs) being taken under her sexy spell and all that stuff that we've seen that done we've seen Uma Thurman do that uh, I'd like to forget about that one personally (laughs) Um, but that was very much sexuality from a male perspective rather than from a female perspective and there is nothing wrong with using it as a symbol of strength and yes she can use her sexuality to get what she needs to get 
but never just for fun. It's always for a reason. It's for the greater good of saving the planet. If you look at a lot of the comics about Ivy, she has this incredibly sad backstory where her sexuality was used against her and her femininity was used against her and men have abused her and ultimately changed her into who she is. And the way she owns her sexuality and by being seductive is her way of taking that back from the men who abused her and by having strength, by owning it herself. And also accepting who she is as this amazing plant-like woman, rather than it being something that was thrust upon her by men, she grows to accept it as part of herself and to own it as much as she owns her sexuality. So that was incredibly important. In terms of motivations and in terms of the world today, initially when she was in the comics, she was seen as this very sexy, overly kissy woman. <laughs> and very much was, what we got in Batman and Robin. Absolutely. And that was and it was very campy and it seems a bit of fun. And oh no, this woman's kissing everyone. Let's punch her and put her in jail. You know, and that was awful. And also the environmental thing tied in, particularly with the 60s and the rise of the hippies. And again, it was treated almost like a joke, or like, oh, this crazy woman wants to save the trees. Let's punch her and put her in jail you know and however as the comics have gone on the world's changed and we're all very understanding and aware now that the environment is not a laughing matter and women's sexuality is not something for men to own those are two very important things that we're aware of now that we weren't aware of before and I think if you don't mind me saying looking at a lot of the comic books today there has been an issue of the writers realising that, oh, we can't mock her for these things anymore. We mm-hmm. can't, you know, punish her for these things anymore. So what do we do with Poison Ivy as a villain? Mm-hmm. And so they killed her off last year. <laughs> I mean, yep. they have since undone that, but it was kind of like they didn't know what to do with her because they couldn't use her motivation as a baddie's motivation anymore mm-hmm. because she's a hundred percent right what mm-hmm. she does in terms of killing or some of her other methods are obviously not right but it, she doesn't really work as a villain anymore i'd like to go back to the point that you said about because uh, initially it was just men writing the, these stories you know at the very beginning uh, what do you think of the new movements that we see? You know, Wonder Woman's being directed by Patty Jenkins. Um, you have Birds of Prey coming out, also directed by a female. Um, you know, uh, Margot Robbie is getting involved in producing these films. And what else? And Captain Marvel that came out recently was co- co-directed by another female. What do you think of this movement? Do you think <laughs> it's? Do you think that we're finally at a point where we can tell these stories from a woman's perspective and could be told right? I'm in two minds because, yes, definitely, definitely more female directors, more female directors telling female stories and telling them right. I think it's really important, more so than the directing stage, is to have these women involved at the writing stage. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, I mean, it's hard for me to say as a female director, and I guess there should be more female directors out there. People are using directed by a woman as a motif and as a almost like a gimmick and unfortunately we have a lot of men not blaming all men i love men you know it's it's not blaming all men but we have even captain marvel was co-directed by a woman we have a recent issue with i think it was big little lies that was directed by andrea arnold and then i believe it's andrea arnold but they 
basically took it away from her and changed it. Mm-hmm. In the and the what is the point of getting these amazingly talented women on board if you're just going to control their work completely? And also the producers of a lot of Marvel films are all men. So there is like one woman in a sea of men trying to have a voice. The writer stage is incredibly important to get the character to write at the start. And I, I don't think we should have all female writing teams. I don't think we should have all male writing teams or, or any mix of gents. You know, it should be even. We should have multiple voices at the writing stage to get these characters right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's difficult. And also moving forwards at the moment, yes, we are saying more women, more female directors, fantastic. The issue is if we keep seeing these women as female directors, they're not going to be seen as directors. Exactly. I, 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 I 100% agree with what you're saying because like you said, it, it, they're almost saying directed by a woman as a marketing ploy to come get you to see this film. Because it's a novelty. It needs to be the norm. Yes. It needs to be directors. And you see, and you, you hear the word director, you picture anyone. Anyone, any ability, any gender, any colour. It's what you need to picture when you hear the word director. Yes. At the moment, you don't. You imagine a white man on a chair with a megaphone, you know, that classic thought. Yeah. <laughs> Spielberg. Spielberg definitely you know and and all the filmmakers that inspired me to get into filmmaking were men very talented men but that was the only option for me back then Mm -hmm. as as films to watch but the problem is yeah at the moment yes while we are moving towards getting more women in the film industry we need look at this female director we need female only film festivals whatever female only networking funding schemes i'm part of a lot of those i'm very supportive of those because at the moment yes we need those and we need to be encouraging more women to only make not only make films but also to make the wider world more aware of these women in film but i want us to get to the point where we need to we can shut those down and we don't need them because it is the norm to see anyone directing any gender you know so i'm in two minds yes for now we need to do whatever we can to not only talk about these films being made by women but also go see them (laughs) and sell tickets because that's incredibly important uh but yes for now then let's keep doing that let's keep shouting about it Uh, so back to growing shadows what was the hardest artistic choice you had to make in making this film her, uh, Ashlyn as Poison Ivy, I was, I mean, that was so hugely difficult and important because we knew her appearance was going to be, everyone has a different opinion in their heads of what Poison Ivy looks like, what the perfect, po- it's same with any comic book character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everyone thinks this is how they should look. And not just comic books, it's book adaptations. I mean, I. Yeah, anything being adapted. <laughs> I watched the Harry Potter films when they came out and I was livid at how they made Hermione look and Sirius Black and people like that. You know, it's it's, it's the way it goes. Um, and so that was taking all that into account and knowing that we were never going to please everyone, but we had to please as many people as possible <laughs> within one appearance, whilst also making her palatable for the modern post-Nolan era. So this incredibly beautiful, magical green goddess woman done realistically mm-hmm. also done in a way that we as the filmmakers were happy with and also as because we were fans ourselves so that 
took a lot of discussion, a lot of meetings. I think it was Ashlyn who suggested having her corset look like bark so that it kind of touched on different eras. So she was in the corset costume, which is so similar to the original one, like you said, the original number one Poison Ivy first appearance, and also the Batman animated series had her in that corset, and a lot of versions have done. And then more recent versions, she's she's natural, she's all natural, she doesn't wear clothes, anything on her body comes from her, mm-hmm. it comes from growing vines or anything like that. So that was how we, we tried to find the mix there. They almost made her more like a mutant, didn't they? Yeah, but but, but like a natural creature. Like, yeah. and I don't mind that because I feel like she has learned to own who she is. And so for her appearance to become more plant-like, as she's accepted herself, I think makes perfect sense. But that's why we went for the, the shape of the costume mm-hmm. to be like the original appearance and also the shape of her hair, the classic Hollywood story, Hollywood style type hair, uh, but with natural looking fabrics and natural appearance and the hair was full of leaves and more messed up so it was kind of that perfect balance between different looks and uh, I don't know if you've noticed but a couple of months ago uh, DC have just announced what Poison Ivy's new look is going to be in the comics and they have put her in a bark corset as well so we actually first but I'm kind of like, I'm a little bit like, oh man, I thought we were onto something unique, but there. You could just say we did it first. <laughs> but it's their character. It's not our character. Yeah. They own her, so they can do whatever they want. But yeah, That is very true. <laughs> uh, in the, That's a good segue, actually. Uh, what was it like? Because um, obviously you would have to get permission from DC and Warner Brothers to do this film did you not uh what were the certain rules and aspects of doing this film with them obviously being their property we we do not have permission and we are not supported by dc in any way or warner brothers who own the any cinematic outing of of dc is owned by warner brothers now uh we do not so we not only run the risk of being shut down now but we (laughs) but we have run the risk of being shut down all the way through production that's why for a long time although like i said the film was being made over a period of three years we were so under wraps there was a a, a page on our website that for a while we just called the secret project the secret project's coming soon this is how much money we raise this is how much we need and we were incredibly cautious and we did not share any photos until we had to we didn't want to crowdfund it because mm-hmm. we knew was going to be at that point everyone was going to know what we were doing and we were more more likely to get shut down we only did that because we were not able to get enough funds we got some funds but we weren't able to get enough funds without crowdfunding so that's why we had to do that eventually but again no one on this film has made any money from it Mm -hmm. we are not making profit on it we are not claiming ownership of the material and we're not making money on the material which is incredibly important if you look at a lot of fan films the majority of the time as long as you're respectful and you don't make money and you're just doing it purely out of love and to spread a bit of entertainment for fans, then generally a lot of the big companies either don't notice you or they can be supportive. Mm-hmm. You get the occasional official fan film, which is wonderful. But sometimes, say there was a recent Star Trek fan film which made a lot of money. It was a very expensive film and it made a lot of money. I Brilliant. heard about that, yeah. Yes, and of course they got sued because they cannot make money on that material. So that that's the fine line you've got to tread. I'm not saying we're not going to get taken down. 
or be given a cease and desist. But I, I hope, I hope if if Warner Brothers, if DC see what we're doing, I hope they understand and that they can see that it's done out of love. It's not a money-making scheme. We had very little money, very little time, and a very, very small crew making this film. And yeah, we, and we don't we don't mean anything offensive by it. And yeah, but also we have not had a version of Poison Ivy on screen since Uma Thurman, who epitomised everything we don't like about the character. Yes. And and I know they've done it recently in Gotham, but in terms of the big screen outings, we haven't had it. Mm-hmm. And even, oh, even for me, though, even in Gotham, uh, at times, I don't think it was handled well. I mean, they renamed her. They called her Ivy Pepper, and everyone knows yeah. her real name is Pamela. You know, it, it's crazy. And so, although I want them to completely understand that we don't mean anything offensive by making this film and we do it out of respect, mm-hmm. I also think that Warner Bros. need to understand that there is a desire for Poison Ivy on screen. And if they're not going to do that, then they can't expect everyone to just sit on their hands and wait to see it. People are going to go out and, and make fan films. And, and the response we've had from fans has been amazing. They've all got in touch and been so supportive and saying thank you for making this film we've wanted to see her done right we've wanted to see her on screen for so long and we're trying to fill that need mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the bigger companies aren't doing i mean i'll put i'll put my hand up and say this is for me the best on-screen adaptation i've seen of ivy oh god thank you That's so, <laughs> uh, in terms of the script how how rigorous really did you stick to the script while shooting? Was there much, did you, was it like, this is what we're doing and let's do it? Or was there a lot of trying out different ideas and improv and stuff like that? By the, by the time we got to the shoot, because we had such limited time in the location because of our budget and, and because of the hours that they gave us, we had to be directly to script and which isn't always my favorite thing to do. So because of that, we, we did spend a long time beforehand Basically, we use the pre-production time to try stuff out and to improvise things. And myself and Ashlyn Diaf and also Robert Dukes, who's the co-producer who played Bruce, we spent a lot of time doing these fantastic, intensive acting sessions, which would go quite late into the night and we'd all be completely exhausted afterwards. But we <laughs> we would, first of all, do it as it was on the script and then we would analyse everything and go over, like, is this the right, right way of saying this? Is this bit clear to the audiences? Could this be said better for me, for some of the actors? And we'd also then take away the script completely and try doing stuff in character as Ashlyn and Rob themselves and how they would react to the scenario if they were in it so that they could then look at their own mannerisms and hopefully bring some of that into the script and into their characters so that it felt more natural and more real and then we go back to the original script and bring those new learnings and and their own characterisms and put them back into the script and then we'd write it again and then we'd rehearse it again and then actually we'd have to write it again after that and so yeah it took a lot of of practice and experimentation because we, we had the time to do it because we had those three years where we couldn't either we didn't have enough time to shoot the film because of other projects or because we didn't have enough funds we would take the opportunity to look at the script and, and to meet up I, I do think some people can go too far with script development and if it ever got to the point where we we're like we're analyzing this line for the sake of it then we'd stop it was only if if we found ways to make things feel more natural for the actors or more understandable for the viewer because there was a lot of exposition going on there's a lot of dialogue it the film 
succeeds on dialogue alone. And if any of that wasn't clear, the whole plot is told through dialogue, mostly mm-hmm. by, by Robert as Bruce. So if any of that wasn't clear, we had to change it because we knew we'd lose people because we couldn't show them stuff. We didn't have the money to show them stuff. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. all these people, uh, these the business tyrants blocking out Gotham City Park with skyscrapers in the storyline. We we couldn't afford to show that. So <laughs> it had to all be told through conversation. And that's why it had to be spot on in terms of the script and also the delivery by the actors, which was no mean feat. No, of course. I, I suppose it helped as well that uh, Aislinn wrote the script herself and be saying the lines yeah. or, or did she find that even more challenging the fact that she wrote it herself she was a very very generous writer because she, she was an actor first and foremost and mm-hmm. poison ivy is the part that she was like born to play and that she's mm-hmm. wanted to play it's her dream role all her life so first and foremost she was true to herself as an actor so if any of the script changes were to aid her and her performance and she was perfectly do it and you know she was very understanding we, we had a few friendly debates between the three of us but mostly she was absolutely fine to just crack on and change stuff and, and she'd get the laptop out after she'd stand up perform and then sit down get the laptop out and change the line <laughs> and have to do that constantly but uh, no she was, she was very generous with, with changing things you rewrite stuff at every every single stage of mm-hmm. production we've had stuff that on paper was brilliant and we got there on the day and we shot it. And again, it felt brilliant. And then you, not for this film, but for others. And then you get to the edit and you're like, wow, this entire scene slows down the entire film. The whole film stops dead because of this one scene that felt brilliant when we were doing it. So you change the script in the edit. You'll move stuff around. You'll even add extra lines through ADR or, or occasionally through, through reshoots and, and you rewrite the script then. So it's constantly changing and evolving depending on, because you've got to play it by ear. On film shoots, sometimes things happen. Sometimes your location falls through on the day and you have to change the script there and then to adapt and keep filming. But I do think there's a limit with, with rewrites. Like I said, if, if it's the right thing to do to tell your story right for your audience and to make it better, but still true to your original vision, then definitely do it. it, it there's very much an issue of too many cooks spoil the broth. Mm-hmm. If you are sending your script out to 50 different people for feedback who aren't part of your team, who aren't part of the production, and you might get a couple of people who love the idea and who are giving you suggestions to make it better. But you might, for example, say Poison Ivy. If I'd sent Poison Ivy out to a million people and 50% of them were Batman fans and 50% of them hated fantasy and hated Batman, they might suggest stuff to make it more into the kind of film that they would like, mm-hmm. which is great. But it's not the film you're going to make. It's not the film that your fans would enjoy. So I think you need to be very limited on who you listen to. Feedback is fantastic. And yes, rewrites always make your film better. But you've got to be careful who you listen to. One question I really wanted to ask you, because uh, this surprised me when watching Growing Shadows. And I was like, whoa, OK, we're going there. Uh, at what point did you decide to have Bruce without the mask and for <laughs> and for Ivy to know that Bats is Bruce. At what, at what point was like, okay, we're going to do this? Because that's for, for any DC Comics fan, you know, that's that's huge. That's quite big. Yeah. And we knew that people were going to. We've been very lucky, actually. We were convinced that we were going to have a massive backlash on that, and we haven't. Everyone's 
for the most part, just been really supportive of, of the characters we've portrayed and, and the actors did such a great job and they see that. Uh, but we that was the thing we were most nervous about. Mm-hmm. And, I, can, and I can understand why. And bless Rob, who played Bruce. I mean, it's a huge thing playing Batman, even if you're doing it on a low budget with people that you know and trust. You know, it's, it's a huge pressure playing Batman. So that was already a thing for him to to be dealing with, bless him. But also, yeah, essentially, part of it comes down to budget. <laughs> and if I'm completely honest, yes, it costs a lot of money to have a Batman costume and also you have a much higher risk of getting shut down mm-hmm. you see batman he is just... much more protected protected property than, than poison yeah. ivy yeah, but just the silhouette alone absolutely um so that was a huge consideration and also from an emotional perspective of the characters there you take away the mask and immediately you have a more intimate moment and if you look at the scenes between ashton and rob in the film, I mean, their chemistry is incredible. <laughs> they they really really sizzle together, and, and as he breaks down his Bruce Wayne macho facade, the more he admits that he's in a vulnerable place, and they get physically closer and emotionally closer. I I I think that scene, if he's in a cowl and a mask, particularly if it's the rubber type Tim Burton era mask i think would 100 percent take down from the, the natural sexual appeal between the two of them mm-hmm. and it would take away from that so there was that element as a director but i mean we have not had a draft of the script where he was dressed as batman it was something that felt very very natural to ashton when she was writing it she wrote it straight away as bruce and ivy mm-hmm. just naturally and it's only afterwards when we were talking to her and we said is is that in the comics? Oh, Ashlyn, goddess of knowledge about Batman, does that happen? And she, it was just, it felt like the natural thing for her to do from the very get-go was, was to put them together in that way. And we explored if we could keep them in that way or not, because it, it felt like the right thing to do for this story. And then, thank God, there was a, a comic book that came out last year called or was it two years ago around the just before we were filming poison ivy and uh, before we were filming Gr- growing shadows sorry and um yeah it's called everyone loves ivy mm-hmm. tom king's run and in everyone loves ivy she was able to control everyone's minds in a crazy moment of let's make her a world dominating character again and through that comic book through controlling everyone's minds she could see through their eyes mm-hmm. and by seeing through, I think it was Alfred's eyes, she saw Bruce, who had carelessly fallen asleep in his Batman costume with the mask taken off. And and she knew it was Bruce. And she was like, oh, Batman, I mean Bruce. And so in the comic books now, it has been established that she does know who he is. Mm -hmm. And she does know that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And she didn't overly react because she had bigger things on her plate, thinking about the world. So, yeah, although our story is set before then, it's set quite early on in Bruce and Ivy's relationship because it's before before Harley Quinn. We did use the fact that in comic book lore today, she does know who Bruce Wayne is. So it, it is part of canon now. So now that you've done a, a comic book movie, you're part of the, the trend now. <laughs> is there 
Is there another comic book character you would like to adapt, whether it be in DC or, or anything else, or or do you think I'm done with comic book movies? Well, th- this was the the one I wanted to do since I was younger and fantasizing like if I could do any superhero film, what would it be? And and it would always it was always Poison Ivy. I mean, I would love to do it again, <laughs> partly because it was a massive joy to work with the characters, and partly because the team was amazing. Like we had such a great time on set, and we all got on so well, and it was lovely. So I'd like to do more of these. If, if I were lucky to, it's not something I'm pursuing right now because I'm booked on other jobs, but if we were lucky to do another Growing Shadows part two, Growing More Shadows or whatever you call it, then yeah, I'd do it. And if I could do a feature length version, then I know exactly which comic books I would want to tap into. I know Ashlyn does too, because there is so much more story to tell. I'd love to tell at least some of Ivy's origin story mm-hmm. in a feature. It would be amazing. If I had to do one that wasn't Poison Ivy though, which is hard because that was the main one I've always wanted to do. Um, I would love to do Phoenix and do her right. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'd love to see that done because the whole Dark Phoenix story is the best story in X-Men, arguably. It's an mm-hmm. incredible story. I mean, I love Rogue as well. I think Rogue is fantastic. But Dark Phoenix in particular... It's so good and so gripping. And I remember seeing the animated X-Men series again. Don't know why animated series seem to get it so much better than the Hollywood versions. And there's less limitations of animation, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But then you yes. studio executives come along and change the story. The fact that we have had two Dark Phoenix stories now, far too close together, but that's another matter. But we've had two and they've both been pretty terrible. Yep. Yeah, I'll agree to that. <laughs> How do you get the best story in X-Men, if not Marvel Legacy, and do it that bad? I, I, I don't know. But no, yeah, no. that I don't know either. <laughs> I'll tell do- you what, if 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 I could have all the money in the world and I could give you this money to make this picture, I would love for you and uh, Ashlyn to do a ha- Ivy and Harley road trip movie. <laughs> That would be fun. The new comic book series in which she is in a Bart corset, just again to point that out, uh, they do have a little road trip adventure in that. Mm -hmm. So that's actually come out today, I think, in the UK. Uh, So definitely go and buy that because it's a standalone Harley and Ivy comic. And again, if people buy it, they will make more. And I think it's by a woman as well. So yeah, that's in Forbidden Planet and all other good comic book stores today. So go go buy that if you like that. But yeah, I think they do a road trip in that one. Well, as soon as I saw ha- uh, Harley or Harleen, I should say, um, by the end of your film, I was like, oh, they're going there. And then I was like, and she's got the accent as well. Like you, because yeah, <laughs> I, 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 that that was because I'm. Harley is a really important character to me because, uh, like yourself, I was a huge fan of the animated series, and that's where she was birthed. Uh, and you know, Joker being my favorite villain, you know, Harley wasn't always too far behind, so I always really liked her. So I'm very critical when someone tries to do an a- adaptation. I'm like, you gotta have that New York accent, and you yeah. guys got it. Ah, oh, shout out to Claire Gleave because she. I mean, no one in this film, none of the actors were from America; they're all <laughs> English. Mm-hmm. And they all nailed the accent, which is something that I can't do personally. Especially um, Ashlyn, like she just is Ivy, even on set. Um, 
Ashlyn would go for a bit and Ivy was there and I'd be talking to Ivy who was quite intimidating mm-hmm. than Ashlyn and then as soon as the camera stopped rolling she was like let's all go back to mine and we'll make food and she was all bubbly and lovely again and English again um, <laughs> but yeah no um so Harley I mean yeah Claire we really had to study the accent with her and do it a few different times but we were also very keen to explore that younger Harley in that uh, Dr Quinzel era which is how her and Poison Ivy meet in many of the comic adaptations, mm-hmm. uh, which is a storyline that I love. But, well, first of all, it wasn't Harley. It was just a standard security guard. Oh, right. Um, okay. And we were trying to figure out who was going to play them. And as we were building along, because we wanted to go away from a lot of people only see Poison Ivy these days as Harley's best friend and lover. Mm-hmm. And that's all we see of her because Harley, Bequin- Harley Quinn has become so popular. And much as I love that relationship, I think that Ivy is brilliant on her own and has some incredible stories on her own. And some of the, my favourite comic books are standalone Poison Ivy stories. You don't really get comic books anymore that she isn't in, that Harley isn't in. Even um, A Cycle of Life and Death, which was a standalone series about Poison Ivy a few years ago, brilliant comic book series. They briefly featured Harley and then then left again because that's where a lot of the fan base lies mm-hmm. but if we were doing a Poison Ivy film and we thought we might only get one you know and at the moment that is the case we wanted to not only tell her story on her own and really show her off but also the story of of Bruce of Batman and, and Ivy I think is fascinating mm-hmm. as well and that kind of relationship and that power play and that mutual understanding so that's why I wanted to make it about that more than her relationship with Harley but as we were writing it and as we were developing along we were saying this is for the fans and if we didn't show Harley I think some people would be disappointed Mm -hmm. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that she isn't the main focus of the story and Harley and Ivy's relationship isn't 100% established at this point but just having a little glimpse of her at the end we thought might be enough to excite fans particularly if they don't know it's coming and again massive shout out to Claire Cleave who played her because she kept her involvement in the film completely quiet and under wraps for years Mm -hmm. because she and we didn't want to spoil that reveal for the fans because I wanted them to go in supporting the film for, for Ivy and to see this is a film about Ivy and then kind of reward them at the end of a tiny little glimmer of Harley right at the end. Uh, so that's why we, we added her in and replaced the security guard role with, with Harley, who's distracted from her research and showing that they have a friendship, but also showing that amazing pre-Harley Harley when she's Dr. Quinzel before the Joker has, has ruined her life, essentially. Mm-hmm. And when he was so clever and so young and full of life and energy and capturing that on film, I thought was really fun to do as well. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea going into it. So you definitely fooled me because I, 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 I went into the film going, this is a Poison Ivy film and only expecting to see Poison Ivy. Uh, especially because when Joanne sent it to me, he's, he didn't mention Harley at all. He was like, check out this Poison Ivy film. So that was my g- going into it. So seeing Harley, Harleen right at the end, I was like, that's nice. Like that's, that, that, that I go, thank you for that. Like, oh, you're welcome. But we, we also love that idea of when she had got the iconic voice right, the idea that you kind of see her before, you, uh, hear her before you see her. 
Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. don't know who's going to look like Harley. And also the music. I don't know if you noticed. Shout out to Tom Hawk, who did the amazing score on this. He took Ivy's main theme that was reoccurring throughout the film and added a slight music box twist to it. Nice. To yeah, that's a Joker Harley Quinn mm-hmm. element. And so the music subtly changes from the moment you hear her voice, even before you see her, um, to, to suggest that she's coming. So mm-hmm. That's really cool. I did also really like the music. It did give me a feel of, again, the Danny Elfman era yeah. of Batman. Yeah, we, we listened to a lot of that. We said we wanted to go back to that traditional mm-hmm. sort of spooky, wintry, gotham Gothic, feel. Gothic, yeah. yeah. Uh, absolutely and it's set in an asylum mm-hmm. and have really spooky gothic creepy type music just it just felt so well-rounded but the main thing we wanted to do was to make the music still all about ivy mm-hmm. and if you listen to a lot of the original so batman music you get a lot of deep bassy notes as a masculine sound to it mm-hmm. which is perfect absolutely perfect for batman and we wanted to reference some of that in a loyal fan way but taking that style of music and incorporating slightly more high-pitched light feminine notes and even touches of female vocals threaded mm-hmm. throughout just helping to give it that kind of a this is gotham this is the gotham that fans know and love but this is a woman's story Mm-hmm. And that's what we wanted to represent through the music. Can you tell us a bit more about any upcoming projects or are they hush-hush? No, well, no, I can because I have been talking about them a bit more. There's a couple that we've not really announced yet, so I'll probably keep those ones a little bit more quiet. All of it is down to funding and time because I was always busy with the work for clients or my production design work for other filmmakers as well makes me very, very busy. Uh, but funding is also a huge thing because as the films get bigger, as they have been doing, it becomes even harder to get funding. <laughs> I've crowdfunded 10 times now. I've done 10 crowdfunding campaigns, which have all been successful, but at the same time, I don't want to push people too much. I don't want to keep doing crowdfunding campaigns if I can help it. So trying to find other ways to get investment in these amazing little films is is hard. So, but that's that's the main reason nothing's happening right now. But yeah, we've got a couple in development. There's a script I'm, I've been working with. Well, Ashlyn, again, is writing another script, which I won't share too many details about that one yet, but that's one we've wanted to get off the ground for a while. And that's a ghost story. This is a sort okay. of fantasy type story uh, set in Ireland on a beach. And I really hope we can get that one a little bit further along at some point because that was a cool premise. But the main one we're looking at the moment, obviously we want to get the Night Owls feature off the ground whenever we can and we've been trying for that every year but the main one we're looking at at the moment is a film called the barn which Mm -hmm. is one that is seeking investment at the moment and that's myself and my co-writer tommy draper is back on board with this one he wrote night out with me and some other ones as well he wrote songbird and we're trying to get that one off the ground because that is a film which visualizes all the stages of fear a man goes through when he discovers he's about to become a dad and that is something which is incredibly rarely shown on screen. You get the idea of male fear and male doubt is something I don't think we see enough of. And Tommy is a dad as well. So he was able to bring some of his own experiences, his own fears about becoming a dad. And a lot of people will talk about the birth process from a mother's perspective and the pregnancy. But the effect that it has on men is incredibly powerful. 
Um, and so that's why we wanted to make this film. But it's essentially it's a psychological, fantastical horror thriller. It's it's kind of unlike anything I've seen made, which really excites me because it's about a young man called Robin who ends up trapped in this supernatural building, which is shaped like a barn, hence the name. <laughs> and behind every door is a room that represents his doubts. He's just learned that he's going to become a dad to a woman that he's not with anymore. And he is scared about not only committing to her, becoming a dad is the next level of fear for him because he's a young man, he's not ready to settle down. And that's why this barn-like building forces him to face his fears. And yet behind every single room is a different a different scene that relates to his fears. So you have you have the doubt about your skills of becoming a dad, you have the loss of social life and that kind of thing, and then you have the birth itself. All these different rooms will physically have a it's almost like Crystal Maze, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> All these different rooms with these different foes inside, which are the physical embodiment of the doubts that he has about being a dad. And he has to get through those in order to escape the barn. And okay. it's ambitious. Wow. And it sounds like a big project. It's a huge project. Yeah. Uh, Would you say so, it's the biggest one you've done up to date? I think it would be, yes. I mean, Songbird was huge. And Stop Eject was felt, but actually the, the shoot itself was incredibly guerrilla. But they had the both had the biggest scale stop eject for me as a producer and songbird for me as a director. But I think this is the next level we need to go to, mm-hmm. and it's the most ambitious, most unique short we we've looked at. But I'm incredibly excited about it, and we are making some progress on that one. It's an idea that everyone gets excited about because everyone says the same thing of oh I've not heard of a film like that before. Mm-hmm. So we're making some progress, but it's going to take a while to get that one off the ground because of the scale of it. So, but yeah, we're, we're doing everything we can. Oh, excellent. I want to hear more from that as soon as you get more info. One final question I have for you. So you primarily, obviously, uh, an indie filmmaker. Would you consider yourself an indie filmmaker? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any aspirations to do a Hollywood film? Ooh. <laughs> Is that something that maybe you'd like to maybe try once see what it's like or is it not in the cards at all are you quite happy doing what you're doing as i said if i had the opportunity to make the the big poison ivy film funded by warner brothers yes you know i would i would do it i would definitely definitely do it because it needs to happen and i would love to be the one to make that so i wouldn't say no to that i mean Hell, if someone comes to me and says, make the next Star Wars film, I would be an absolute idiot to say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're just not going to say no to that. But there is a level of control that you mm-hmm. have with um, short films and with guerrilla filmmaking. And I'm not saying I want to have all the decisions and to be me, 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 me. I'm going to make all these decisions and make my film the way I want it, because that's not the way it is. It's a collaborative experience. And I have my filmmaking team who feed into the decisions I make and I'm thinking about my audience. So it's, it's all those things. Um, but that level of freedom to that extent compared to when you have studio executives saying, you have to make the film in this way because we've just learned that this trend is popular. So you need to change your character to match this current trend. Mm-hmm. And those kind of decisions, because they pull the strings and they have the money. It's is, a business. It's a business. And it's, and I mean, I, and I, I run my business making film and I, I get certain levels of that but it's difficult I mean look look at Edgar Wright 
when he very true yeah ant-man and that was an incredibly experienced brilliant director and it was a horrible experience for him Mm -hmm. i do think you've kind of got to be okay with not having a say when you were when you direct a hollywood film it's a it's a weird business and if you can get through that that whole system and have no say at all and still come out with your style represented on screen and your reputation intact i have no idea how people do that but i mean so no like as long as i can make my feature films that's still the goal for me and it's still a yearning that i have is to get my features off the ground in a time where it's hard to even fund short so either way hollywood or independent as long as i can make my features with the people that i care about people i enjoy working with and being able to have a say on my crew then i think i'm going to be happy i mean i would say that's the perfect place to end that right there (laughs) thank you well sophie thank you so so much for coming on the show so interesting to get your insight into filmmaking uh the industry and also this wonderful wonderful film you and uh, ashlyn have done together growing shadows so for everyone listening go check this movie out it is out on youtube and vimeo to watch now uh but before we head off sophie where can our lovely listeners find you and Tresco productions we are everywhere we're all over social media you can triscale pictures is quite hard to spell if you can search for triscale pictures or triscale pics on twitter you'll be able to find us on facebook instagram and twitter but if if not search for me i'm slightly easier to spell just search for sophie black film on twitter and instagram and you'll find me there excellent so that's it guys this is the first interview of film seven interviews from the as i said earlier at the very beginning the wonderfully talented sophie black but until the next interview you can find us film seven on facebook twitter and instagram at film seven podcast and check out this interview and all our previous episodes on apple Podcasts, spotify google play and all major streaming services but until next week guys see you later (laughs) 